I'm delighted to welcome Barry Wood, RTHK's International Economics Correspondent, and Ben Emons, Principal Senior Portfolio Manager, New Edge Wealth. Good morning, gentlemen. Good morning, Stephen. Good morning. Good morning to both of you. Thanks for joining us today. Let's start with strikeonomics. Now, that's a new buzzword for me, and I love it. Over the last 20 years, the average number of strikes has risen annually and by over 50% alone since 2021. But so have wages of union members that are higher than the average, according to a recent report by the Biden administration. I remember announcing this a couple of weeks ago and having a chat with you about it, Barry. The Biden administration say they are 15% higher for union members. Ben, I believe there are many disadvantages, but there may also be some benefits of strikeonomics. Ben. It could be. Yes, it could be. Good morning. Um, thank you for highlighting that, that note. Um, so I kind of looked at that and said, like, you know, typically we, we put labor unions and strikes in a very negative context. You know, one, it's the history of the 70s, because when they start calling strikes, then they start bargaining for higher wages. And that already in an environment at that time of higher inflation led to this wage price spiral. That's sort of in the mind of many people how to connect labor unions with wages to inflation. But we're in an environment in the United States currently where after the pandemic, we still are really in a strong economy, lots of people already working. And so it's actually beneficial to the labor market if labor unions negotiate higher wages, right? Because what it looked like last week was a lot of people coming into the labor force. And that, I think that trend may continue. And as that happens, yeah. you get more product, more productivity, and that's actually good for the economy. So I think what we're dealing with currently is maybe a big shutdown uh, of auto production middle of September for, for a week or whatever that will be. That will be a short-term hit to the economy. But it could well turn out to be a very good agreement and raise wages. And in this environment of the economy where it is currently, that will be a positive. Yeah, I mean, I, I was in South Korea over the weekend and having a, a chat with a lot of people there um, who were talking about the same issue that there is actually globally, that there's a lot of Gen Z who are just not going back into the workforce. They're either going to the gig economy or just staying at home and living off their parents, which sounds like a very nice thing to do. Um, but I guess higher wages could bring them back. So that could, in effect, be a, a, a good thing. Uh, Barry, what, what do you think? Well, I, uh, I agree with what Ben has said, that uh, there can be positive elements to wage increases uh, of the type that the president has talked about. But in fact, uh, I think the negotiating power of trade unions is slim. Hmm. And the auto workers union is um, a fraction of what it was. It, if it goes on strike in 10 days time, I think that's going to hurt Detroit and Michigan, where I come from. But it's not going to hurt the auto industry nationally because all of the foreign investment in autos has gone into southern states that are not United Auto Worker represented. So I think that uh, that's not going to be a particularly important story. It could be. Uh, it's a sideshow that President Biden says there won't be a strike. And the UAW <laughs> chairman said, don't say that. You mm. can't predict what's going to happen because it does seem to be quite contentious. The fact is that the auto companies in the South, in Tennessee, in Alabama, Mississippi, Mercedes, the Germans, the Japanese, the Koreans, they all pay a UAW rate or more. So in that sense... Uh, if the UAW wants to attack the question of temporary workers and, and be uh, an advocate for them, good luck to them. But uh, I don't think this is going to have a big impact on the U.S. economy. 
Well, I mean, recently, Barry, the Teamsters negotiated a very good deal, which seems to, uh, you know, be on the side of its uh, a benefit to have a strong There's no union. doubt about that, Stephen. Yeah. There's no doubt. But again, 11% of the United States workforce of 135 million workers is unionized. 11%. That's a very small number. The Teamsters are a significant force at UPS. They got a very good contract. The company is very successful. Their principal competition, FedEx, is going to match that or go above that. So there will be increases in wages. And indeed, that's a good thing. Well, then could that lead to higher union membership? I mean, when people see the headlines of 15% higher wages from the Biden administration, sounds quite compelling, doesn't it? No, not really, because, look, there have been efforts to organize Apple store workers and Starbucks Starbucks workers, and they're not really going anywhere. There's not real momentum. I think that's because that uh, a lot of younger workers are rather cynical about trade unions. They think that uh, the unions are themselves part of the Democratic Party and that there's lots of objectivity that's absent. And there's also a concern that uh, the union leadership is paid too much money. So there's multiple reasons why young people are increasingly saying, what's the reason for joining a union? Yeah. Okay. let's move on to China now. Now, the headline on Bloomberg yesterday was why China is avoiding using bazooka stimulus to spur economy. Interesting word choice with bazooka. Um, It did bazooka stimulus during the global financial crisis in 2008 and 9, and even when the pandemic hit in 2020. So what do you feel are the key reasons that it hasn't done so this time, Barry? Ah, let's start with Ben, if we may, because this is uh, Ben's bailiwick, and uh, I would prefer to follow. Go on, Ben. Sure, yeah. So, you know, the the terminology is is about actually showing the bazooka and not firing them, right? And that would actually, if you do that, which which was sort of the idea from Hank Paulson at that time in 08, the markets will react, and that will actually by itself create stimulus and you don't have to do as much stimulus then at all as a government, but that doesn't work that way in China. But we, we know how the stock bubble in 2015 sort of was engineered by the government and was a disastrous policy. So yeah. they don't want to repeat something like that, right? So they're more sitting, we're dealing with a property sector that has 185 billion of liabilities that they have to ring fence and work that off over a long period of time. Just like Japan had that with its banks, back in the 90s. And this is coming together where the reopening of the economy has sputtered because consumer confidence in China has collapsed to an absolute low that as I've never seen before. The Bloomberg actually has data on this. It was actually a, such a collapse, there's even deeper collapse than our own consumer confidence here in the States. So I looked at that saying, yeah, this is where Chinese people are really reserved to go out there and really spend in a way maybe because they're monitored more than we would be here. On the other hand, it's just, I think, wariness about the shutdown and how it could return, right? Potentially, if, if COVID were to reemerge again, which may well happen. So I think it holds the Chinese economy very back, and therefore they don't see this bazooka approach as the right way to get the economy off the ground. Rather, they try to ring fence the property sector through the banking system and add liquidity and moreover, try to open the borders for foreign investment and try to spur it that way. I think if that continues, that would maybe be meaningful, but we have to see more policy action in that front, though, meaning 
wider open borders from China to allow more foreign capital in that could invest there. And you know, there's skepticism about that too, because how the Chinese government will treat foreign investors. That's why Raimundo, the, the, the Commerce Secretary, was out there the other day, right? He tried to argue, say, look, you want to do that, you got to be fair and you know, run it by the right rules. And there's a lot of political issues about that. So, um, Ben, just before we go on to Barry, is, could this be like a, a rabbit and tortoise race where China's going for a much slower and steadier pace, but Aji could come out best in the long term? Yeah, that's true. And I think the, the, the slow and incremental ways, you know, it plays into the, the I think, the more traditional way of China approaches uh, monetary and fiscal policy, uh, unlike we have done, even though that the 2008 and nine episode was somewhat of an exception maybe to their history. Um, nonetheless, though, I think that they're very serious about trying to hit their growth target. It's just not going to be a short-term target any longer. It's, it's likely going to be the next two years to try to hit 5.5% GDP. That may have changed here over the course of this year. And we're finding this out by, by this incremental piecemeal approach that we're seeing playing out in policy stimulus so far. On the other hand, it's a, a I think a policy that's, again, like I said, it probably will be very much focused on how to bring capital back into China, how to restore some of these trading relationships and we know that it's very challenging because of the geopolitics that have developed around China over the last several years regarding the supply chain, the pandemic and the trade war. Anything to add, Barry? Yes, I, I, uh, I agree with what's been said. I think that um, the Chinese authorities are taking the approach to move slowly because I think they fear if they move dramatically with a big stimulus to make the economy take off, according to theory, that that could mm. convey to the public that there's really a problem mm. and that they're desperate. So they've taken this piecemeal approach, which has not worked thus far. There is no confidence in the market. There is no confidence getting back into the housing sector. And we'll have to see if this works. I think there's also a bigger problem, Stephen, that looms over geopolitics. And that is, why is President Xi not going to New Delhi? That's why the are of the there day. no why are there no Chinese <laughs> officials coming to Washington to follow up the three visits from Americans to China? What's going on? Are the Chinese cross at the Indians and the Americans or just the Americans? Did he did Xi not want a meeting with President Biden? You know, there's 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 some hidden things here that I think are quite potentially distressing. Let's not forget President Xi was with Prime Minister Modi of India two weeks ago in Johannesburg at the BRICS summit. Did he tell him he wasn't going to be coming to do New Delhi? I mean, this is a very important event for the Indian authorities. And Correct. in one sense, not coming to the party is a big deal. So, so answer your own questions there, Barry. Why isn't he? Oh, no, I don't have a clue. But I would welcome, <laughs> yeah, okay. I would welcome your view and I would welcome Ben's. Go on, Ben. Yeah, so, so, you know, Li Qiang, if I say correctly, right, is, is his protege, uh, uh, Xi Jinping's protege, and, and he is really taking a step onto the global stage. And I think this may be a, a, a policy tactic here that I've seen once before, yeah. where it could be related to the, the, the chance relationship with the United States that they feel that they are not ready yet to make further steps there until 
they may see our political situation play out because as you as we all follow every day what's happening with former president trump gaining more and more more gain in the polls um while he's on her indictment he's very clear about proceeding uh with with the trade war right and and it's very much directed at china even though he claims he's a good friend of xi jinping so this may be somewhat playing in the background on the one hand and the other hand it, it, it who knows it could be something more internally there that he he can't he doesn't want to attend for some reason either way it, it looks like that china wants to make a careful step here um, I do think, though, that they are concerned with the perception about China's economy being weak and why they will continue to try to, you know, put out the, um, the communicate that they're making the right steps to try to prop up the economy in the right direction. As I said, China ties foreign investment, but it will take time for that to really um, work out. Okay, let's stay on the subject of the G20, and you've each got about 20 seconds on this one. So let the challenge begin. India, chair of the G20, revealed yesterday that the international negotiations are in motion to establish a groundbreaking global framework for cryptocurrency regulations. How do you rate their chances of agreeing on one, and do you think it'll have a positive impact on the crypto market? Barry? Zero. 20 seconds. (laughs) Zero. It's not going to happen, because uh, you can't have... Uh, a crypto agreement without the major powers signing on to this. And that means the United States, Western Europe, Canada, Japan. And absent the preliminaries that would have gone into such an agreement, it's not going to happen. Okay, well, zero's a nice round number. Ben? Yeah, a cryptocurrency, like a global standard for it, would be like replacing the reserve currency. This is a really a central bank issue. So the Federal Reserve... The European Central Bank and other central banks, they will never sign on to this sort of okay. initiative unless, unless it's regulated right, by central banks. OK, well, it's been a, a pleasure to chat with Barry Wood, RTHK's international economics correspondent, and Ben Emans, Principal Senior Portfolio Manager, New Wedge, New Hedge Wealth. To